Hi, I'm Grant Wall, and welcome to the Planet Football Podcast. Today, SI's Brian Strauss joins me to talk about Manchester United and Jose Mourinho, a new addition to our list of bad players on good teams, MLS's big opportunity this week in CONCACAF Champions League, and my bold argument that one of the top candidates for the U.S. men's national team job should be Bob Bradley. Onward! All right, let's bring in Brian Strauss here from Washington, D.C. via cell phone because your internet just crapped out. It did, it did. I uh, I live in a building with uh, 1998 communications infrastructure. Um, when I stream games, it's just a bunch of amoebas on a green field. Um, and uh, like I was just telling you offline, we're going to have a showdown at a board meeting tomorrow night over this. And uh, we're going to bring pitchforks and torches. Is this going to be a good time? So uh, this could be our very last podcast together. What re- people don't realize is you've actually been on dial-up every time we've been connecting by Skype. <laughs> right. So, uh, I send my stories to Avi via Raven. <laughs> so lots to talk about this week. I want to start out with Man United. We're going to get to plenty of CCL and MLS stuff and Nations League because uh, that's big stuff too. But I want to start off with Man United beating Liverpool 2-1, to one, getting some space on Liverpool in second place in the English Premier League, and obviously a very big game coming up for Man United against Sevilla on Tuesday, 0-0, heading into the return leg there in the round of 16. Uh, what's your sense of Man United right now after that game uh, over the weekend? I love the fact that uh, Mourinho afterward. I love Mourinho, by the way. I just think he's a he's a he's a heel, and 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 he's he's just compelling, must see TV every single time he opens his mouth. Um, every time he's in a big game, I I can't get enough of the guy. Even even when I hate him, it's, it's like I hate watching. You know, like like I cannot I cannot stay away from him. Um, and he and I just love the way afterward he was like, yeah, yeah, Liverpool, Liverpool's big, but we have two much bigger games coming up, you know. <laughs> so, which is true in a sense. He's got Sevilla, like you said, and then they have the FA Cup quarterfinal this weekend. But it was also a little dig at Liverpool, which which he does so sort of surgically and and consistently. And I think it's great. Um, I think it's a good win for them. I, I think, like you said, it 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 gives them a little bit of space uh, in second place. And this is a team that has finished. Uh, you know, fourth or lower in the past four seasons. I mean, that's that's hard to wrap your mind around, but it's true uh, that that Manchester United, the, the 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 giant Manchester United, has not finished better than fourth in four straight years. So to finish second uh, in a league that was essentially over by Thanksgiving um, is is a, is a decent return. And this is Mourinho's second season, and he's still putting some pieces together and still cobbling together. The, the team that he wants, and they're obviously still adding, as we saw with Lukaku over the summer and then Alexis Sanchez. Um, so considering all of that, uh, they went out and, and, and frustrated Liverpool um, and, and found a pathway to win that game. So a, a, a good start to a big week for, for Jose and Manchester United. Yeah, two Marcus Rashford goals in his first start in a blue moon. It certainly makes you wonder if maybe Rashford should be starting a bit more often. Um, you made a blue, you made a blue moon reference about Manchester United. I, I did, which That's is incredible. probably a little ridiculous considering they're crosstown rivals. But uh, it's incredible. Um, 
in any case, I, I look at how they scored these goals. And on the one hand, you're kind of like, this is route one soccer. This is David De Gea booming the ball downfield and a couple of headers and some nice finishes uh, by Rashford, especially on the first one to cut inside yep, and finish. Cool. The second one was deflected. But, um, you know, that first half I thought was impressive for Man United. It seemed like how they want to play in many ways. Second half, not nearly as good. Uh, kind of a ridiculous own goal finish uh, by Eric Bailly, uh gave Liverpool a chance, and, and they had some opportunities late, a ton of corner kicks in that game. Uh, couldn't quite find uh, the equalizer. But, um, you know, this rivalry is always a fun game, and I don't think Liverpool is going to be too too bothered. Uh, they're still in good shape to qualify for Champions League with Chelsea sort of falling like a stone in fifth place. Um, but, uh, and Liverpool's still looking very good in Champions League as well. They've already qualified for the quarterfinals. So one thing I wanted to say about Liverpool, a couple of weeks ago, we had had this conversation, uh, when we were talking about Barcelona and Andre Gomez about who are the worst players on good teams out there. And I've got a new nomination for this list to join (laughs) Andre Gomez. And that is Liverpool's day on Lovren who I think is terrible. He is, I, I really don't take a lot of um, pleasure, I guess, in saying that, but he plays regularly. He's terrible. And there is this one stretch of the game against Man United the other day where he just hammered Fellaini twice, fouled him really hard twice in a short amount of time. And Klopp was so angry at Lovren that everyone in the stands and the refs thought he was yelling at the ref, but he was yelling at Lovren because he was so bad in that moment. And, and, and if we're being <laughs> honest, bad in... Pop ran halfway down the field. It was amazing. Yeah, and if we're being honest, just bad in general. I, I can't tell you how many games you know, we've seen Lovren be bad. And it amazes me, as with Andre Gomez, that they continue to get playing time. Well, he, and he was manhandled by Lukaku in the in the first half, which in and of itself is nothing to be ashamed of because Lukaku is a handful. Um, but I, I and I think I saw a comment by Mourinho again that back to my Jose obsession. Um, you know, I think he said before someone asked him like, "Why did you, why did you uh, finally give Marcus Rashford the start?" And Mourinho, I believe, said essentially that he was going to target Alexander Arnold. On, on Liverpool's right. And of course, uh, you know, Rashford beat Alexander Arnold for both goals. And so this was clearly the plan. I mean, Liverpool relies on that in- incredibly potent and dynamic front three. Um, and they're a little bit softer in back. And so Mourinho, again, being the genius he is, was like, well, I'm going to just bypass the front three. I'm not going to, you know, play into Liverpool's press. I'm going to go high and over and wide. And, Target Lovren with Lukaku. Target uh, uh, Alexander with with Rashford. Um, Van Dijk uh, had a couple iffy moments. I mean, right. I think his cover on the first goal could have been better. And that's where Liverpool's weaknesses. And Jose didn't mess around, and he just exploited it and went at it. And goals change games. That's what you always hear, right? So all of a sudden you're up to to nothing. You can sit back a little bit. You can absorb a little bit. You can stay organized. They have those two. Uh, two midfielders in front of the front four and Joe's and, and what they had like 30 something per, percent possession, right? 30% possession at old Trafford and Mourinho's like, yeah, yeah, but we were in control of the game. 
And that's just like completely vintage Mourinho, and it's amazing. So you're right. That's a weakness for Liverpool. And Mourinho, there's no one better at, at, at chiseling away at, at, at you know, the, the, one, the one scale that's missing uh, in your armor. And uh, it, was, uh, it was vintage. I will say this about Mourinho. Two of the most intense and fun interviews I have ever done uh, in terms of one-on-one sit-down interviews have been with Jose Mourinho. And we did both of them in late 2010 during his first season at Real Madrid for a big Sports Illustrated magazine story. And I sat down with him once in Los Angeles preseason and then once in Madrid. And I've actually got a photograph. And I don't take many pictures with people that I interview. And I tend not to want to be in a situation where I'm like, you know, my arm around them because I think that's sort of unprofessional. Um, But I do sometimes have pictures taken of when I'm actually interviewing somebody and working. And I love this in, this picture because it shows how intense the interview was. It was just two chairs right across from each other, two very basic chairs. And we've both got our hands on our knees. And we're just basically that, – that was it. It was like back and forth for an hour. And it was one of the most intense but fun, memorable experiences that I've ever had because the guy is so freaking smart and he was engaged and – uh, I wish we could have interviews like that every week. Yeah, I've never met him, and, and I would, and he's he's like on my, I don't know. I guess if there's, I, I'm just inventing this right now because I don't really have one. But if there was like a soccer bucket list of people I wanted to meet, he he would be on it. Um, I wouldn't want to be sitting in like a cinder block interrogation cell with a spotlight on us like you were. <laughs> but uh, but that would be cool. Also, also, I I don't think I have ever in my career had my picture taken with someone. I, 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 yeah, I've never, I've never done it. I, I, I couldn't even figure out, it wouldn't even occur to me. I certainly would be too embarrassed to ask. Yeah. I've never done that. Yeah. And I understand everyone's got their things. Um, but, um, but it's cool to have the photo, but it's different. It's cool to have the photo because like you interviewing him, like that's like a, that's like a game shot in a sense. That's different from, right. from like, from like the, Hey, we're best friends kind of, I think it's a, I don't know. Yeah. The thing I wonder about Mourinho is he's already extended his contract at Man United and we still don't know how this season's going to be looked at if you're Man United, because we know on the one hand, they're going to finish pretty far back of Man City in the league, but there's a lot to play for, obviously still in Champions League. And I think that's going to have a big impact on how this season is viewed. Um Mourinho in his third season usually starts to run into trouble. Uh, I think what's happened, especially in recent years, is he sort of starts to wear out his welcome a little bit. And one thing that's a big change since I wrote that story about him in 2010 for Sports Illustrated is at that point in time, I I remember writing about this, all of his players and ex-players basically loved the guy. They freaking... I mean, there's this one great video of Marco Materazzi when, at Inter when Mourinho announced he was leaving, like, of Materazzi, like, breaking down, saying goodbye to Mourinho. And the last couple years, we've started to see more players that Mourinho doesn't seem to get along with. And sort of the ongoing current situation appears to be Paul Pogba. Um, and so I do wonder if maybe some of the Mourinho magic has worn off at least since he won that title with Chelsea. 
I'd love him to come to MLS. I'd, lo- <laughs> I'd love to have that guy. I'd love to have him here every week. That would be immense. Uh, God, you want you want to make you want to make MLS compelling viewing. Um, well, and 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 but Pogba also. I mean, you, you've done some reporting on this. I mean, Pogba could also be. It could simply be that does he fit tactically? Does that does, does right. can Mourinho find a place for him on the field? Um, yeah, we'll see. You're right. He's he's worn out as welcome. He's also he's also been at clubs. Um, you know, with Chelsea and Madrid, obviously that 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 has um, with Abramovich and then just the the, the Chelsea culture. You know, this is. <laughs> Madrid's a club where, you know, Zidane wins two consecutive Champions League and Club World Cup titles and then, you know, has a bad month and people are wondering if he's going to be fired. Right. So, you know, the the grading comes from both sides there. And, and, and Manchester United, I've, I mean, you would know better than me, are, are, are the Glazers up in his face all the time? Like, no, you know, no, he, he's right. He's been, you know, he, he, he won the Europa League his first season. That's a, that's a trophy. That's a thing. Um, and then this year, he's going to finish second, most likely in the Premier League, behind what many people are saying are this the best Premier League team of all time. Um, he's continuing to add to the squad, um, and he's got a shot at the FA Cup and a shot at the Champions League. So yeah, I mean, there's still a history to be written here for this season, but the trajectory right now seems good. Um, maybe the wheels will fall off in year three, like you said, but right now um, it seems good. And 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 with with some guys missing. Uh, on Saturday, he uh, he did not have his his full squad available with some guys missing. Um, he he outcoached uh, um, Klopp and won and helped his team win the game, a big game. So you know, right now things seem to be going okay. One thing I wanted to bring up, and we mentioned uh, Lovren and Gomez being on our list of bad players on good teams. There's an interview with Andre Gomez of Barcelona in the newest Penenka. It's in Spanish, but it's starting to get translated into English out there on Twitter land. And it's a really brave interview because Andre Gomez, who gets booed and whistled by his own fans at Barcelona, is very honest in talking about how he has basically lost uh, the sense of fun that he used to have with playing soccer, that he doesn't enjoy playing anymore. It's very difficult for him that he's really going through a lot. And should I feel bad? Because I'm starting to feel bad about criticizing the guy. <laughs> oh, my God. He's a person. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you, you play for a team like Barcelona. You, 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 you subject yourself to the, uh, to the spotlight. And sometimes, sometimes that burns a little bit. So, um, you know, hopefully he gets his, his personal stuff sorted out. Well, I just think over the years we've started to see more athletes talk about the mental side of things and starting to say publicly that they don't always feel great mentally, whether that's Landon Donovan or we saw Kevin Love recently in a Players' Tribune story yep. talk about having a panic attack during a game and how he's now seeing a therapist and thinks it's important to talk about this publicly because there's such a stigma still in the sports world. So, um, you know, I, I think it is good to remind everyone that Andre Gomez is a human being, and I'm glad Andre Gomez reminded everyone of that. Um it's still going to be sports, though, right? And so you're still going to be, you know, the media is going to be critical of guys, you know, whether it's Gomez or Dayan Lovren or, or whomever. And sometimes the members of the media are are, are depressed. <laughs> exactly. I mean, it happens. Some, some, sometimes. <laughs> I, I can't imagine who I'd be talking about. Anyway. 
<laughs> so one other quick thing about Man United, They're, they got Sevilla on Tuesday. So some of you will probably be listening to this before that game. It's 0-0 going into the return leg at Old Trafford. And I want to go on a mini rant here because after the 0-0 on the road at Sevilla, I tweeted something to the effect of good result for Man United. And all of these people on Twitter were like, are you kidding? And we're saying things that, oh, they didn't get an away goal. Here's my take on this, Brian. If you get a 0-0 on the road in the first leg, you're in a good spot to, to advance. And if you can't win at home, you don't deserve to advance. If you win at home, you will advance. So help me out here. I think away goals are dumb. I've been ranting against away goals for years and years. This is this is one of several reasons why. Um, yeah, Man- Man- Manchester United did not lose away. They are coming into the home leg um, again. I mean, coming off a big win. I, I don't know if Anthony Martial will be available. I don't know what his situation is. Um, but certainly Mourinho's got some, some guys to work with. Um, and you're right. All they have to do is uh, is win at home in front of tens of thousands of, of fans on their home turf. So it's a good result. They didn't lose away. I agree. Yeah. I, I, that doesn't mean that two, that doesn't mean that two two wouldn't have been better. But 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 to, to paint it as a, a binary not a good result is ludicrous. Yeah. Um, speaking of Champions League, let's move over to Concacaf Champions League, um, where let's be honest here. This is maybe the biggest week for MLS in the the league's history in Champions League, right? Except for maybe in the final a couple of times. It's a a huge week. Yeah, yeah. So here's... And and the fact that both... I was going to say, both both times an an MLS team has been in the... has made the finals. It was was Ralph Salt Lake in 2011 and the Montreal Impact in 2015. And, And with all due respect to those clubs and those runs, those are not two of the marquee organizations in MLS. Right. Um, they, they punched above their weight in, in, during those runs. Um, Montreal needed that incredible uh, stoppage time goal against Pachuca. Um, and, and then did they beat, um, beat a Costa Rican side or was it a way goal? I don't remember exactly. Um, uh, Ralph Salt Lake didn't have to play a Mexican team till the final. Again, great runs, compelling stories. But but these were not organizations that that whose success uh, would have necessarily lifted MLS to a different level, put the league on the map in a way it's not already. It, it would have been seen as a, that was awesome. But is this sustainable? Is this is this something that can be continued? Is this a blueprint that can continue to be followed? Now we've got Toronto, Seattle, and New York. We've got three big clubs, big organizations, big MLS markets with plans, with identifiable, sustainable ways that they've built their teams. Um, and, and, and this is just much bigger, I think. If, if, if all three teams can advance and, and if at least one of them uh, can, can get to the final and win this thing, uh, I, I think this month will be, could be seen as a watershed month for the league. Um, so, yeah, I think it's big. There's a lot at stake this week. On Tuesday night, you've got uh, two of the three return legs in these quarterfinals in Champions League. You've got uh, Toronto at Tigres. Toronto's got a 2-1 lead with the late goal coming from Osorio to come back from being down one nothing in that game. Um, yeah, great second half by Toronto in that game. Yeah, and then you've also got uh, New York at home against Tijuana. 
up to nothing. The most impressive result of the week for me was clearly the Red Bulls winning two nothing at Tijuana. Um, and they've rested their players, didn't play their top guys over the weekend, still destroyed Portland for nothing. Um, if you're going to pick one team that you should feel pretty confident about an MLS team advancing, I would think it's the Red Bulls. Uh, and then Wednesday night, you've got Seattle going down to Chivas de Guadalajara up one nothing on a Clint Dempsey goal. Uh, and Chivas not playing particularly well in the league either. And so, uh, you know, if I was going to say which teams in order were most likely to advance here, I would say Red Bulls, then Seattle, then Toronto. But, you know, they have a lot of work to do, but you still had all three MLS teams against Mexican opponents winning the first leg. Yeah, and, 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 and obviously we're at a point now where MLS teams should expect to win at home, and Seattle will, will, will rue their mischances. They could have won that game 3 nothing uh, pretty easily right. and, and, and just, just didn't do it. Um, the Red Bulls, I believe uh, the New York's win in Tijuana uh, was only the third win by an MLS team in Mexico, um, and it was in 20... It was a while ago. It was 2011, 2012, around then, where within like a week... Um, FC Dallas and Seattle both won like group stage games, like or, like early group. But this was, I think, this was the first time a knockout uh, game. An MLS first team won, won a knockout game yeah. on the road against the Mexican team. So that's a massive, massive result. And then, like you said, you know, Jesse Marsh rolled out some seventeen-year-olds uh, this weekend and pummeled the Timbers. Yeah. So again, this is something what the Red Bulls are doing, what Seattle and Toronto are doing, each in their own way, is is building something that that looks like it's sustainable. Looks like there's an identity there, a style of play, a, 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 an acquisition strategy, um, and these are things that that have to, at some point, prove successful on the field. Um, that the, the excuses are are running out, the patience is running out. They've got to find a way to win these games, and it's a shame, as I said last week or two weeks ago, it's a real shame that the stupid draw put put Toronto and Tigres together. Now, um, it would be great to see Toronto with another month of games under their belt. Uh, going down, uh, going down there, and seeing if they can get a result. But Tigris is really, really good. Um, I think they played a lot of their starters this weekend. Um, I think they played Tijuana, um, so uh, so they're not going to be as well rested. But they're so talented and so deep. It's going to be a tough ask for Toronto. And unfortunately, if Toronto does find a way to get through, they then have to play Club America. Their draw is just absolutely brutal. So I agree. I mean, I think if MLS could have a, a New York Seattle semifinal. Um, on one side of the bracket to kind of tout for a couple weeks, that would be a big deal for the league. And obviously would mean one of them is in the final and to have a club of that size uh, in the final, I think would feel a bit different uh, than having uh, RSL or Montreal there. Again, no disrespect to them. It's, it's just the truth. Yeah. I would just encourage everyone to watch these games. They're on the Univision Deportes network. They're also, I think in English on go, go 90 uh, as well. Um, but these are real games, real competitive games that people are paying attention to on both sides of the border. I've really enjoyed actually watching on Univision a lot of their soccer talk shows. CCL is like the main thing they're talking about a lot of the time. And part of the discussion is maybe we should start respecting MLS a little bit more. You get that respect on the field. MLS potentially, as you said, in a watershed moment here. Well, um, but MLS. Again, I mean, the, the, the thing about the, not to belabor the point, but the thing about RSL and Montreal's runs, it, they, they seemed like one, they felt like one time thing, right. right? It didn't feel like something that was going to be sustainable. For MLS to really get respect, if that's quantifiable, um, 
for MLS to, to be, you know, for those teams to be feared in Mexico and not just sort of grudgingly acknowledged. They've got to, they've got to win this thing and they've got to win it multiple times. It can't just be a one run, can't be a fluke. And so, yes, this week has to turn into one of these teams getting to the final and winning it and then winning it again next year. It's got to happen multiple times for there to be any sort of um, kind of egalitarian feel to this thing, for there to be any kind of real respect. I, I, I think this is watershed. I think this is important, but it's important only as the foundation for the rest of the structure. If, if, if MLS teams advance in two or three of these series and I hear stuff next week that this is that, that everything's already changed. No, nothing's changed. If they all, you know, if they crap out in the semis and embarrass themselves and nothing's changed, this is watershed because of, because this is the first of, of, of several important steps that have to be taken. Meanwhile, in CONCACAF, which apparently last week suddenly changed its, uh, name from all caps to just capital yes. C. Um, we are burying the, we are burying the lead. Uh, <laughs> exactly. Um, Huge. I will no longer scream out CONCACAF now when I see it. Um, <laughs> you can speak in all caps, right? But help lead me through and our listeners through the CONCACAF Nations League was announced last week, among other things. Oh, boy. And I feel like this is about as difficult as trying to explain to a non-soccer person why the League Cup exists in England. Uh, what the heck is Nations League, and is there any remotely simple way to explain it? Have you ever had those? Those conversations are really fascinating, by the way. You know, when you're talking to a complete neophyte and you're trying to explain, no, 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 he plays for his country and his club. Right, no, it's, it, right, it's two totally different things. No, the Europa League, you, you go to the Europa League if you crash out of the Champions League third qualifying round. Like, and, and people, it's like those, those gifs of, 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 uh, of beautiful mind, you know, with all of the, with all of the, the theorems and cosines and whatnot um, dancing around the guy's head. Um, so the, the Nations League is, is interesting, and it's, and it's kind of bringing up this issue of what's good for the elite versus what's good for the masses. Um, and it's, it's, this is what we talk about and argue about in all kinds of things, politics, sports, you know, what's good for the 99% and what's good for the 1%. Um, and the Nations League is good for CONCACAF's 99%. It just is. Um, it's a way to get all of these smaller countries more games and, and, and games in competition, games that matter. For a lot of these teams, they play two or four uh, World Cup qualifiers every four years. They play a couple Gold Cup qualifiers, and that's it. That's their competitive program, and it's just not good enough. And, it's not, and, and this is the majority of CONCACAF that we're talking about. Um, not the not the teams that get to the hex every four years, not the teams that go deep in gold cups. And so the Nations League was devised um, to to give all of these countries, all 41 or 40, I don't know, depending on who's suspended, uh, members of CONCACAF, every two years, a, a minimum, well, they're going to have qualifiers this time, but otherwise, you know, four to six games every two years that are competitive, um, that could get them to the gold cup. Um, that could get them, you know, eventually, if they get promoted up through the Nations League tiers, games against bigger countries, the chance to bring their teams to Central America, to Mexico, to the U.S. So I, I get all that, and, and, it's, and it's good. I mean, it, making, making the Confederation better, theoretically, raising the floor, uh, will help everybody. 
Um, the converse is, is this good for Mexico, USA, maybe Costa Rica? I mean, do, do, do these teams need um, four to six more competitive games against the same teams we see in World Cup qualifying, the same teams we see in the Gold Cup over and over and over? How many USA-Panama games have you covered, man? Like, I've got, I've got so many of those, you know? And so this means more of that. And is that something that's going to be enticing to fans, to sponsors, to media, to players? Are guys going to be flying over from Germany for a, a, right. you know, a, a Nations League game against Haiti? It, it, it remains to be seen. But this, is, but this is the interesting kind of chasm that CONCACAF is trying to bridge here. And they're going to make this effort. And I guess we'll see down the road. I mean, this thing will start for the U.S. and Mexico in the fall of 2019. Um, after the Gold Cup. So the Gold Cup is still the next official competition for the national team. It's not for more than a year. Um, for those of you who needed the concept of 2019 explained to you. Um, and, uh, and, and we'll see. We'll see whether or not this is something that, that brings, that, that helps the national team, that, 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 like I said, draws attention from, on TV, from, from fans. Do people want to go to these games? We'll, we'll find out. I would also say, I mean, a little more context too, is that, these are going to be taking place on what used to be called FIFA-friendly dates. Uh, so right. international calendar weeks. Yep. And uh, in part, this is beca happening because UEFA, the European teams, have their own Nations League that's starting as well. And so they won't be available to be an opponent for the U.S. or, or other teams in friendlies anymore. And so I think this is part of CONCACAF's response. Um my sense is, I mean, this is just me guessing here, but I would predict that for the big teams in CONCACAF, like the U.S. and Mexico, one of the biggest things about Nations League is these are competitive games, not friendlies. And so you can captize someone in a Nations League game. And I wonder if that might help a little bit by providing more competitive dates in, in you know, different years to captize guys who might've had to wait a lot longer or been up in the air for a lot longer. That could be a silver lining. And, and, and they could also be, you could expand on that. Right. I mean, we, you know, we, we're not, we're, we're, we're not going to see teams play, uh, you know, experiment for lack of a better word in, in world cup qualifiers, but no one's going to get fired over a nation's league performance. So, you know, the nation's league is a time to, to, you know, d d while you're building your, your senior side, your, your, your first 11 for the next big competition, get a look at, at, at some younger guys. Get a look at, at some fringe players. I mean, it's, it's, it's another chance for a national team coach to, to sort of cultivate, uh, you know, the, his pool of players. And so maybe that's what it'll turn into. And it will also give – and, and there, there's a road component, right? You're going to play – two games at home and two games on the road. So it's a chance to get guys experience playing on a sopping wet field in Trinidad or playing in the heat of San Pedro Sula. And so maybe the next time they go get there for a World Cup qualifier, they're not surprised or, they're, or, or they don't take it for granted because we've seen that happen. So these could all be silver linings to this. I mean, the, you, you bring up a good point about UEFA and the friendlies. Um, and again, this is something geared toward the smaller countries. I mean, St. Kitts and Nevis, wasn't going to be scheduling France if France was available to our friendly, right? So, you know, does we could have a long conversation about whether teams like the U.S. and Mexico benefit more from a friendly against, you know, Germany, Spain, France, England, or whether they benefit more from a competitive game 
you know, in Guatemala and, and, and having to go through the things that that requires. And, and, and you can, you can come down on either side of that issue, but this is the, this is the new world order. This is the way things are going to be. So I think in the long term, the U S has to hope that this raises the floor, that this makes CONCACAF. We're never going to be in UEFA. They're not going to invite us. So we have to hope CONCACAF gets better and you can make a case that this will help CONCACAF get better in the long, long run. You mentioned how often the U.S. plays Panama. I really do like the ceviche that you can get at the stadium in Panama. And I know people will think that's like the dumbest thing you could ever do is have ceviche at a sports at a, stadium. At a stadium. It's awesome. It was absolutely awesome. I had like two whole containers of it. I did not get sick. So if they send me back to Panama, I'll get some more ceviche at the stadium. Well, I only get to cover Panama here. And so I, I, am, I am tired of covering Panama in places like, like Frisco and, and, and Chester. And so, yeah, I, I don't get to go on those trips. So, don't need, so don't need the ceviche done. at the stadium in Chester, by the way. I'm going right. to be, dude, I am going to be scarred for the rest of my career by that Gold Cup third place game against Panama and Chester. I think that's what this is about. Oh I think this is God. about demons and PTSD coming from that experience of covering that game in 2015. And, and it's informing all of my opinions about the Nation's League. I think I, it's, I, it may, it's perhaps I have a bias. the first and last ever third place game at a Gold Cup because they realized that it was like basically the worst game ever. And I like to think that we're pros, but in that game, I almost ordered like pitchers of margaritas for everyone in the press box <laughs> just because it was, it was just so bad. Yep. Well, that was good. That would have been good. I've told this story before. I had to, I had to essentially break into, uh, it was, I guess it was still PPL Park back then, but I had to essentially break into the kitchen at PPL Park. <laughs> because it was like 90,000 degrees and we were going into penalties and there was nothing to drink anywhere. And I mean, it was, it was, it was brutal. It was, it was even, even for us, you know, I guess we're all soft. Yeah. But this was above and beyond the call of duty. And it was just kind of everything came crashing down. And so, um, look, I am going to be open-minded on the nation's league. Like I said, I, I can see, I, I can see the arguments for it. Um, I can see why it helps CONCACAF's responsible for helping the whole region um, it's not CONCACAF's fault. We are not playing in the World Cup this summer. Um, you know, they are, they are trying to elevate the sport around the region and giving these smaller countries competitive games is a way to do that. Um, it'll be up to the U.S. and Mexico and, and Costa Rica, et cetera, to try to get the most they can to make the best out of this situation. You know what maybe they do? Maybe in addition to trying new players, maybe U.S. soccer – you know, makes these, puts these games in, 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 in new stadiums, you know, brings the national team, you know, again, this is not, we have to win. Everything's at stake here. We'd like to win. It'd be nice to win, but our world cup fate, our gold cup fate is not hanging in the balance here. So let's play in a new stadium. Let's make tickets $15. You know, right. let's try to spread the gospel of the national team to different places. Let's try to use the nation's league to the nation's leagues about building the grassroots for CONCACAF, let's use the Nations League to build the grassroots for the national team support here for or for players, et cetera. So, so maybe they'll find a creative way to make the best of it. Speaking of the U.S. men's national team, as everyone knows, the coaching position is not filled right now. It's just a caretaker, uh, Dave Sarakin. And I want to throw something out there, and I, everyone will probably say it's too early or they'll think this is the worst idea ever. Bob Bradley 
for next U.S. Men's National Team coach, I am starting to get very warm to that idea, Brian. Is there a reason I should not be? People would lose their minds. Um, <laughs> the, day, the day that happens, I'm, I'm, I mean, I've essentially quit Twitter. Like, I hardly tweet anymore, but, but I, I, will, I, will, I will delete my account the day that happens just to avoid. Look, Bob has, ne- Bob has, never, Bob has never gotten the respect Bob's work has never gotten the respect um, it deserves. Right. Um, at the same time, I think some of that was Bob's own doing. Um, but he is clearly not the same guy that he was 10 years ago, I think, for or 12 years ago or whatever, for a variety of reasons. Um, I want to see him do well. I think he's an excellent coach. Um, look at what LASC just did to Rail Salt Lake. Um, and that doesn't mean they're going to win five to one every single week. That doesn't mean they're going to go undefeated. It doesn't mean they're going to win MLS Cup. I think it but does. You can see, you can see how how well prepared and thoughtful um, his teams are. He's a very very good coach. Uh, I just think that after Bruce Arena's failure um, against Costa Rica and in Trinidad, which we have talked about ad nauseum, and it is Bruce Arena's failure, I think. The, the concept of a quote-unquote retread, uh, no matter how deserving or, or, or competent or talented that coach is, the very notion of that will be so toxic to people that it can't happen. Um, and, and, and it's unfortunate uh, that, that part of the fallout and part of the mess that Arena made uh, may impact Bob, but that's just the way it is. Second, just second thought real quick, is that I wonder if Bob would even want the job, because I... I the national team coaching is not, a, as we know, it's not a day-to-day thing. You're not working with players every day. You're not out on the training field every day. You're not thinking about how to make your team better every day. And that's always struck me as the sort of guy that Bob is, the guy, a guy who wants relationships with his players, who wants to work together with his players, who wants to be out on the field, who wants to be dealing with the nuts and bolts of the game every day. That just seems like what would be up Bob's alley, and I wonder if he'd be more happy in a club setting uh, than in a country setting. But yeah, very impressive start for Bob and LAFC, and, and he's a damn good coach. Here's a couple of things I would say. One, I think if Bob Bradley had been the coach instead of Bruce Arena last year, that the U.S. would have qualified for Russia. That's 100% true. Two, I would yeah. say that if you saw, if you listed a coach with Bob Bradley's resume, all the things that he's done over the years at for club and country – and you didn't include his name, but you just listed the resume aspects, most fans would say that guy should be one of the top two or three choices for U.S. men's national team coach. You, you are right, except for – you are right. But I think I'm right about the, the toxic uh, <laughs> um, nature of, of, of the retread. And again, that's a really harsh word because retread, the connotation is that it's, he's undeserving and, and he's not. He is. But I, I think everybody wants to go in a different direction. Everybody wants to try something new. There's one consensus in American soccer. It, it, it's that what we tried didn't work. Jurgen didn't work. Jurgen was not a serious game day coach. He was not a serious tactical coach. He, and, then, and then Bruce was, a, was, an, was an arrogant retread. And not that Bob is arrogant, but, but everybody wants something new. And, and Bob was the coach for a long time, and Bob coached in a World Cup. And I just think that by itself will disqualify. People don't want to see a familiar face. Um, 
So whether it's a guy, especially especially if the GM that perhaps will be in place next month, um, especially if the GM is is American and and is hired for his knowledge and experience with American soccer, all the more reason then that the head coach can be uh, from abroad and 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 bring experience from there. That would be a good balance. That would make sense. And then if it is an American coach, I just imagine people being more intrigued by someone like Greg Berhalter, by someone like Vanny, you know, by a, a younger guy who hasn't had his shot yet, who's proven to have some tactical chops. I, I just think it, it may be unfair to Bob, but I just don't think anyone's going to want to see uh, an encore from anybody. I don't <laughs> think it's about Bob. I, I think it's, I, we want to be introduced to a new guy. Um, and you know what? Credit to Bob if he's like, you know what? F you. I don't want the gig. I'm, I'm, I love I live in Manhattan Beach or wherever he lives, and I'm building this thing, and it's, I get to play with Diego Rossi every day, bite me, you know, and that would be great. <laughs> I would still say why— But you're right. We would, have, we would, be, in, we would be in Russia uh, if, if Bob—Bob Bob would not have played one midfielder in a road <laughs> qualifier. We would be going to Russia. By Even the, his own son, he would not have done that. By yet. the way, behind the scenes, Bob was with that team when they won 4 nothing in Orlando, and then a few days later, he was not with the team when they lost in Trinidad. I rest my case. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, think, I, think, I think you and I have, would probably have very different reactions to Bob being hired uh, than... than of the U.S. national team fan base. I I will say this. I still think Juan Carlos Osorio and Roberto Martinez are probably my two top choices for that job. I think there's a decent chance they might be interested in that job, uh, even though there are some reports about potentially Colombia having talks with Osorio to take over after the World Cup. Uh, Mexico has apparently offered him a contract, which he apparently turned down. Um, So... Uh, I think those are two really intriguing possibilities. I think there's a few U.S. coaches. You mentioned a couple like Greg Berhalter, uh, Greg Vanny. Um, but I think if you're going to put a list together of U.S. coaches, Bob Bradley should be on that list. Mark it down. I, I sound like a talk radio host here. This is ridiculous. Um, all right. Well, that is it for this week. We're at about 41 minutes here. But really enjoyed the conversation. Let's do it again next week. All right, I'll mark it down for next Monday. Thanks for listening to the Planet Football Podcast. I'd like to thank Brian Strauss, as well as everyone at Cadence 13 and Sports Illustrated who supports this podcast. Please, if you like the pod, tell your friends, subscribe, like, and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help the cause if you do. And check out the 30-minute Planet Football video show hosted by me, and Luis Miguel Echegaray on SITV. Recent guests include Danny Hewson, Andy Das, Tom Penn, and Jeff Agus. See you next time. Do you know about the Locked On Podcast Network? The number one daily sports podcast network. Locked On has a daily podcast on every NBA and NFL team, plus a growing lineup of college and MLB teams. You get a daily bite-sized podcast giving you the latest on your team from the local experts. Lakers fans, search Locked On Lakers. Cowboys fans, search Locked On Cowboys. Just search Locked On, your favorite team, on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, or tell your smart speaker to play podcast Locked On, your favorite team. Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.